The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley from the National Prayer Chapel. Let's pray as we begin. Lord, I'm asking today that you would remove the veil from our eyes, that you would give us eyes that see and ears that hear and a heart to obey you. Lord, I need you today. 
And my brothers and sisters who are listening to this broadcast, we are in trouble, Jesus. We need you. Would you come now? Would you encourage our hearts and fill us with the presence of your power? Lord, thank you. I pray in your holy name, Jesus. Amen. I welcome you to this broadcast. I believe that if you're listening to this broadcast, it is because there is a great desire in your heart to see Jesus and to go to heaven, to be a part of his kingdom. But what if a deceiver slipped in and taught something that became very popular, but that teaching will keep you out of the kingdom of God even though you confess the name of Jesus. That did happen. I don't have time today to teach about this man, Parham, who I believe loved Jesus, but who became utterly deceived and turned the course of revival in America, and we are now reaping the seeds of his wicked decisions coming out of his own arrogance and his own followers. It turned the tide of the gospel in America. It disabled us. In later broadcasts, I'll deal in depth with this issue. But today, I want to lay out for you the rejected blessing. Now, I'm going to share with you from a book today entitled The Rejected Blessing by Pastor Jim Kerwin. Jim Kerwin, you can find on the internet if you just Google kernelsofwheat.com. It's his teaching ministry. He's a wonderful, godly pastor and missionary, Bible teacher, a scholar, second to none. I'm eager for you to hear and to understand what this rejected blessing was, what it is, how it can be received and what we have done to destroy many from being able to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, I watched a video this week of a pastor as he was preaching to a group of high school and college young people. He opened his message with two questions. The first question was, how many of you believe that as a Christian, you can stop sinning. Not one hand went up. And he said, you mean you don't believe you can stop sinning? He said, of course, you're right. It's commonly believed and known that we will always be sinners. We can't stop sinning. We must be covered by God's grace. He said, I have a second question for you. The second question is, is it true that the normal life of the Christian is sin? How many of you believe that it's normal for Christians to sin. Every hand went up. Now, he did something very unusual. He said, It's true, you cannot stop sinning. But secondly, it is not normal that a Christian should continue to sin as a as a believer in Jesus. He just said two opposite things. He destroyed the power of the gospel for these young people 
and then proceeded to go through scripture after scripture explaining why they had to stop sinning. Sin is the issue. And there is a blessing that we have in our modern church utterly rejected. But before we go to that rejected blessing, I'm going to take you to the scripture that he went to to prove that as Christians, we cannot stop sinning. He went to several, but the only one that was really the powerhouse for what he said he believed is found in 1 John. In 1 John, the first chapter, I'll begin reading with verse 5. No, please. Consider what I'm going to say to you. And I say this to you because when I look at what's happening with Black Lives Matter, when I look at what's happening in our streets and the violence, when I look at the lies associated with this virus, when I look at the way it seems that our freedoms are being stripped away from us, I know it's time for Jesus to come. I know we're facing a time of great tribulation. And the modern theology of the American evangelical church will not carry you through this time of tribulation. You will fall away. John MacArthur, a very well-known pastor, a radio minister as well, said, and I heard with my own ears this word, so it's not rumor. He said, It is impossible for you to lose your salvation. Once you become a child of God, you cannot be lost. And he said, For that reason, when the mark of the beast is given, and you have to receive the mark in order to be able to survive and take care of your family, it will not cost you your salvation. You will still go to heaven. Now, he's not alone. Charles Stanley and others also preach that you cannot lose your salvation once you have received it. All of that came out of Calvinism, and it entered into the church, the Pentecostal holiness, through a man by the name of Parham. So let's go to this first John passage of Scripture. I want you to walk with me through this. I'm going to be reading in first John, the first chapter, and this is the message which we have heard from him and report back to you that God is light, and there is no darkness in him, none whatsoever. If we may say that we have fellowship with him, and yet we may walk in darkness, we lie to ourselves and do not the truth. But if we may keep walking in the light, just as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from every conceivable sin. If we might say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That was his key text. So he said, look, you cannot stop sinning, and if you say you are not sinning, you are lying. You are deceived. He continued, if we may be in agreement with God with respect to our sins, he is faithful and righteous so that he may forgive and the word in the Greek is aphemi, meaning to utterly remove the sins with reference to us and may cleanse us from every conceivable unrighteousness. If we may say that we have not sinned, we represent him to be a liar and his word is not in us. Now, let's look at this 
very seriously. What is he saying? Well, first of all, you have to go to the context of the passage of Scripture. You can't just pull this Scripture out and say, oh, if you say you don't have sin, you're a liar. You have to read the passage in context. And it's very clear that he's writing this And most biblical scholars will agree. He's writing 1 John to to rebut the arguments of Gnosticism. Gnostic thought was very damaging in the New Testament church. The Gnostic was a person who believed that he was free from sin, not because of the cleansing power of Christ's blood, but by the nature of his spirit. Gnostics viewed all matter, the human body, all things of flesh, as inherently evil. Only what was pure spirit was sinless. Irenaeus, that great church father, says concerning the Gnostics, it is impossible that spiritual substance by which they mean themselves, should ever come under the power of corruption, whatever this sort of action is in which they indulged. For even as gold, when submitted to filth, loses not on the account of it, but its beauty is retained. Now, the Gnostics were teaching, you didn't need Jesus. But John is coming and saying, Look, Gnostic, if you say you have not sinned, you are deceived. If you say you have not sinned, you don't have Jesus. We make Jesus out to be a liar. But now let me read this passage again with a clear understanding of the context and see if it's possible to interpret this scripture to mean that a person who has been washed in the blood of Jesus will continue to sin. 1 John 1, 7 But if we may keep walking in the light, just as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from every conceivable sin. If we may say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Wait a minute. How can verse 7 and verse 8 both be referring to a follower of Jesus Christ? It can't be. Verse 8 is referring to a person who does not believe they need the cleansing blood of Jesus in their life. The only way sin is removed is by the blood of Jesus. Now, verse 9, if we may be in agreement with God with respect to our sins, and he is faithful and righteous so that he may remove the sins with reference to us, and may cleanse us from every conceivable unrighteousness. If we may say that we have not sinned, we we represent him to be a liar. His word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin even once hereafter. But if anyone may sin once hereafter, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Now, let's be clear. You can't use 1 John to teach that a Christian continues to sin. If you look further in the book of 1 John, and he went to this passage as proof that you should not consider sin normal. But let me read this to you. This is 
First John, third chapter, everyone doing the sin also continues doing the lawlessness. In fact, sin is lawlessness. Now, I need to stop just a moment and give you a very clear definition of sin. John says sin is lawlessness, harmatia, rebellion in the New Testament. It is not, John is not saying sin is missing the mark. The classical Greek definition in secular literature is that sin is missing the mark. But in the scriptures, sin is defined as intentional, voluntary rebellion against God. Verse 5, And you know that the one was manifested so that he may take away our sins. Indeed, there is no sin in him. Everyone who continues remaining in him does not keep on sinning. Everyone sinning has not known him, neither has he known him. Little children, you must not let anybody, the one continually doing the righteousness is righteous, just as that one is righteous. The one continually doing the sin is out of the devil, because the devil sins from a beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, so that he may destroy the works of the devil. Everyone claiming Everyone having been born out of God does not continue to sin because his seed continues to remain in him and he is no longer able to keep on sinning because he's been born out of God. You see, if I hold to the belief that all Christians continue to sin, I am saying that John is lying. We are not to walk in sin. We should go days, weeks, months, and never sin against God. We should have a pure heart. But let me share with you some of what Pastor Kerwin says in this book, The Rejected Blessing. Sanctification is the word used to describe the process by which God makes Christian men and women holy, that is, like God himself. Now, I don't have time to give the history and the theological background for the word sanctification. We will be doing that soon. But I can say that the teaching of entire sanctification was crystallized and taught in the ministries of John and Charles Wesley in the 18th century, and developed by their spiritual followers in the Methodist Church. Now, there were many spin-offs from the Methodist Church that believed this, including the Salvation Army, the American Holiness Movement in the 19th century, the Church of the Nazarene, the Church of God, the Church of God in Christ, the Pentecostal Holiness Church, and many other denominations. Now, I want to give you a very concise look at what sanctification is. Now, please, the rejected blessing is the work of sanctification in your life. And without this, you are kept in a shallow place where you are unable to walk in victory and you were held in bondage to sin. I have many more scriptures I'm going to share with you. But let's go through what does sanctification, entire sanctification, as taught in Thessalonians, what does it mean? Well, first of all, it teaches that God is holy and his commandments are holy. And he teaches his people to be holy, by which he means to be utterly set apart from the world to him alone. 
and to be made pure in the heart and free from sin. This is God's purpose for you. Now the whole evangelical church teaches that you cannot stop sinning as a Christian. That lie came out of a man by the name Durham and his followers that found its way into the assemblies of God. The real founder of the assemblies of God was a man by the name of Parham. But Durham's lie called a finished work, meaning that Jesus at the cross forgave your past, present, and future sins, and you are eternally secure once you have received Jesus. This teaching short-circuited the work of God and sanctification in your life, and without holiness no man will see the Lord. And many of you have bought into this lie, and you've said, I can't live without sin. Well, who taught you that? You won't find that anywhere in the scriptures. You'll find just the opposite. But our eyes only seem to see what we've been taught, not what the scriptures teach. Because we want to spend time in front of the television. We want to spend time on the internet. We want to spend time in our hobbies and not searching the scriptures. Do you understand the greatest church movement in the history of the world was Methodism? Methodism derived its name by a method for salvation. And out of that flowed the whole Pentecostal movement. Such amazing, amazing work of God. And I have to tell you, as the Lord called me to himself, and I continued searching after the Lord, when I discovered this truth that I'm sharing with you today, I couldn't even sleep, I was so excited. That Jesus' blood has the power to make me holy, to save me from sinning against him. Not by works, not by my hard effort, but by the supernatural working power of the blood of Jesus. Number two. God in his grace and power provides the means for us to obey his command to be holy. And the means is so thorough that it even destroys or eradicates the inbred sin nature, the old man, the carnal nature. This is where the doctrine takes on its name. Intense sin is dealt with at the very root. Now, I want to read for you. I'm going to stop just a moment. I want to read for you a passage of Scripture in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews, the 10th chapter, let me begin with verse 2. If it could, that is, the worshiping of the old covenant, if it could, would they have not stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. What happened when those animal sacrifices were made in the old covenant they covered the sin until jesus died on calvary and when jesus died on calvary their sins were forgiven and removed now the question is do you believe that jesus blood has no more power than the blood of the bulls or goats of the old covenant? Or do you believe that the blood of Jesus actually has the power 
to remove your sins, to forgive them, and to remove them from your life, and make of you a new creature in Christ Jesus. Let me read another scripture for you. It's in the ninth chapter. I'm going to begin reading in verse uh, 26b. But now he has appeared, that is Jesus, once and for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. I want you to notice it does not say to cover sin. He came to remove sin. Verse 27, Just as man is destined to die once and afterward to face the judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. He will appear a second time not to bear sin. In the Greek, it literally means he will not come a second time to separate us from our sins. Many have been taught that when we die, we're made holy. The writer of the book of Hebrews says not so. If you look at verse 28, I'm going to give you the meaning, the literal meaning of the Greek words, take away. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. Literally, he was sacrificed once to lift up off of you like I pick up a glass of water off of a table. I pick it up. It's, it's taken away. Jesus came to take away our sin, to lift it up off of us so that we no longer walked in it. Now, I know this is so revolutionary, but I want to read for you Another passage, quickly, and then we'll go back to sanctification. In the sixth chapter of the book of Romans, I'm going to read from you for you from the NIV first. Romans 6, verse 5, If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body of sin might be done away with. That's the carnal nature. Now, they have a note down below, or be rendered powerless. But let me read from another version. This is the Lavender translation, and it is a literal translation of that Greek. Knowing this, this is again Romans 6, verse 6, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be destroyed, that we are not hereafter to serve sin. For the one having died has been freed from sin. Now, what's interesting to me that the sin nature in Romans 6, 6, is only dealt with in terms of destruction, crucified, destroyed, stripping off. There are words in the Greek that could mean suppressing, holding down, bound, withstand, but significantly, none of these terms are used ever in the New Testament to refer to suppressing sin. I was taught that we had to suppress our sin, that we had to work hard. No, the blood of Jesus has the power 
to remove your sin. But let me stop just a moment and say this to you. You cannot live at the shallow, sinful place that most Christians in America live and expect to be made holy. But as long as you believe that you cannot stop sinning, you cannot be made holy because you don't believe it's possible. It's like the little raccoon who was captured and a collar was put around his neck and a a cord was tied from his neck to a stake in the ground. And over the stake, the ring was dropped. Now the little raccoon tried as hard as he could to push that ring up off with the top, but he couldn't reach it. It was too little. And so he struggled and struggled and struggled against that bondage of that cord. He jerked on it. He did flip-flops on it, but he couldn't break it. And then, when that raccoon grew up, he was taller than the stake. But he never again tried to take the ring off because he believed he could not take it off. You've been taught that you cannot leave your sin, that you cannot have victory in Jesus, that you are always going to struggle, repent, struggle, sin, repent. You've been lied to. You've been deceived. I was deceived. I believed for a long time in the Reformed doctrine of eternal security. I believed that I was saved and on my way to heaven, even as I was sinning against Almighty God. Even as a pastor, I preached it. I preached the legal justification of the Reformed doctrine, and I discovered in the Scriptures I was being lied to. And what a joy it has been in my life to live clean without sin before God. Am I perfect in the sense of being totally mature? No, I'm still immature. I'll be immature for the first million years in heaven. Angels are going to have to coach me and teach me. But do I commit sin against Jesus? That is, do I voluntarily rebel against Jesus? No, I do not. Do I use the members of my body in sin? No, I do not. I've been saved. I've been sanctified. I've been made clean by the blood of Jesus. Let's go on with this question of sanctification. The most important aspect of entire sanctification is that the heart's ruling passion is to love God. The first and great commandment takes on another aspect altogether, that of the great fulfilled promise, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. You stop loving the world, the flesh, or the devil. You're utterly given into the hand of Jesus. Now, the scriptures depict, depict this sanctification as, as basically in coming in two parts, one process and the other event. That is to say that Christians, by grace and obedience, will grow in holiness. Righteousness leads into holiness. Innocence leads into holiness. What God is most concerned about is whether or not we will allow him in our hearts to make us obedient sons and daughters, not by struggle, not by agonizing, but by surrendering. When the soul encounters God and wrestles with this matter of inward purity, this is known in Methodist terms as the crisis experience. This is a critical juncture in spiritual life when the Holy Spirit desires to take the believer deeper and higher in the walk with Christ, convicts the believer of the absolute need for inner purity. And when God grants that purity as a free gift 
the time and place are just as knowable and recordable as one's experience of salvation. Please understand when I say to you, when a person is born again and regenerated, they stop all sin in the description of Scripture, not in the description of the evangelical church and the deceived believers. Then there is a process by which God comes to us and even removes the old sinful nature from us so that we no longer battle against it. Will we be tempted? Yes, the devil's always going to come as a tempter, and we can always sin against him and fall from the grace God has granted us. But we don't want to. Our love is poured out. Our love is poured out. The the doctrine of entire sanctification was brought to us by the Wesleys out of the scripture in the Methodist church with its very personal message, this message of freedom from bondage, believing we could walk clean before God, that we would earnestly seek him, that we would become sold out followers, absolutely given to Jesus, time, money, energy turning our back on the world's entertainment, turning our back, being set afire by the Holy Spirit. This awesome message of breaking the bondage of sin and not being subject to it anymore flourished in the rugged, individualistic, post-revolutionary war America, and it rode west into the frontier in the hearts of the famous circuit-riding Methodist preachers along with salvation preached from rustic pulpits in camp meetings. Sanctification was the follow-on message that we could be free from indwelling sin. Now, shifts came, changes came. One change was understandable, but very unfortunate. Most spiritual movements seem to lose their power, their distinctives, after a generation or two. This appears to happen to any move of God that men touch and try to institutionalize. Methodism, with its distinctive understanding of sanctification, was no exception. By the mid-1800s, alarm was growing about the coldness in the movement on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean. When reform within the Methodist Church seemed to be failing, many of those who wished to hold faithful to the truth of heart purity left the Methodist Church and formed holiness associations, new churches, new denominations. But in the ensuing decades of passionate defense of their doctrinal dissertations, some even went too far. Now, what I want to say to you today, is that there is a place, if we so desire it, where we can dwell with a pure heart in Almighty God, and sin will no longer be our master. We will be washed and made clean by the blood of Jesus. Now it's a great sorrow to me that this young preacher I referenced at the beginning of the broadcast would so blatantly and upfront say, no, we're going to all, all be sinners all of our lives. We can't help that. He was saying the blood of Jesus is no more powerful than the blood of bulls and goats. He was an Assemblies of God pastor. And unfortunately, the Assemblies of God, as a denomination, bought into this lie that we will always be sinners. Now, they had, in the early beginnings, strong movement of the Holy Spirit. He did not cast them aside. 
they did not believe that the normal life of a Christian was to sin. But because they bought the first lie, the second very true principle that the normal life of the Christian was not to be one of sin was totally devoid of power. And their message today has been so watered down that they have lost almost the full movement and power of the gospel of Jesus. This grieves my heart. There is an institutional coldness that has settled in, and it's been filled now with praise and worship, with worldly music, with hip-hop and every kind of unclean. It's been filled with entertainment instead of the intense desire to know Jesus and the purity of Jesus in our lives as a current experience. Now, I know I'm in a very small minority of preachers today. They used to say, saved, sanctified, and filled with the Holy Spirit. And that was a real experience. It meant they were walking clean. They were not sinning against Almighty God. They were, they were filled with the presence of God. Chapter 3, verse 6 of 1 John. Everyone who continues remaining in him does not keep on sinning. Everyone sinning has not seen him, neither has he known him. But you know where people go to get this sinning Christian doctrine. They go to Romans 7. If you read Romans 6, 7, and 8 in context, you'll very quickly see that the lie of Romans 7 is describing not a Christian, that's a lie. It is describing Paul, the Apostle Paul, before he followed Jesus in his law-keeping, wicked heart. And he says, Who will deliver me from this wretched body of sin? Thanks be unto Jesus. Jesus delivers us from the wretched body of sin. Romans 7 is not speaking about a Christian. Now, if you argue that it is speaking about a Christian, what are you arguing for? You're arguing for bondage. You're arguing against the purity of heart that only Jesus can bring to us. And you're saying that the bondage is so heavy on your life that you're always going to be doing what you don't want to do. But the truth is, you really do want to do it. The truth is, you don't want a gospel that would totally set you free and take you out of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Instead, you want a gospel that comforts you in your sin. The problem is the gospel that comforts you in your sin that is so popular in America today will take you into hell. You cannot be saved while walking in sin. You must leave your sin. You must be born from above. You must be transformed into a new person. And you must seek Jesus with all of your heart and soul and mind. You must love him with all of your heart, soul, and mind. You must be utterly given to him now, if these things interest you and you want to be a part of a church, a very small remnant, a small grouping that is believing what I'm teaching and is seeking Jesus with all of their hearts and seeking for the full baptism of Pentecost, you're welcome to come. We meet in my home. I'm Pastor Ray Greenley. If you'd like to call me, and get directions. We're right between Woodbridge and Manassas. People are coming from Gaithersburg. People are coming from Arlington. People are coming from all over. If you'd like to be a part of that, you're welcome to be. I'll give you the phone number. 703-489-1111. 703-489-1111. 
1-800-444-1785. As we face these days of utter confusion and darkness and compromise, there's only one person who can rescue us. His name is Jesus. There's only one person who can cleanse you from your sin and remove it from your life. And it's by his precious blood, Jesus our Lord. If you're interested, call me. Now, you can write to me at the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195, or you can go online to nationalprayerchapel.com and you can give online. I want to thank those brothers and sisters who have so powerfully stepped in and completely covered the bill for the month of June for radio. Thank you. This is a faith ministry, as you can tell. This is not very popular yet, but I'll tell you what, this gospel of Jesus Christ is going to win revival in America. And the revival has to start in the church. We have to turn and leave our sin. We have to cast off the lies we've been taught about the so-called finished work of Christ. He is in the heavenly realms right now ministering his grace to us as we confess our sin, repent, and turn from it. He gives us the power to have a pure heart. He washes and cleanses us. And he gives us the power to have victory over all uncleanness. That's for you. Don't reject this blessing of a pure heart. Now, let's pray. Mighty God, our Father who art in heaven, I come today with brothers and sisters who have heard a different gospel most of their lives. They have been taught things that have prevented them from moving deeper into you in the life of purity. They have believed that your blood was no more powerful than the blood of bulls and goats. They have been deceived about the wonderful power of your blood to release them from every bondage of wickedness, from smoking, drinking, illicit sex, whatever the sins are. Pride, arrogance, hardness of heart, cynicism. Lord, your blood delivers a man or a woman from every sin and brings us into fellowship with you, Jesus. Thank you. I ask for your miraculous power now to flow over every person listening to this broadcast. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I hope you made progress today in Jesus. Study. Look up in the scriptures, and God bless you. I love you dearly. I pray for you each day. I'll talk to you soon.